A few years ago, I worked for a company called Zero Emission Services. It was a startup company, and our mission was to create a sustainable inland shipping sector. And maybe you don't know yet, but shipping is an extremely polluting industry. In fact, if shipping was a country, they would have had about the same size as Germany in terms of greenhouse gas pollution. Now, our first customer was Heineken, who wanted to become a climate neutral brewer. And in terms of goods transport, they no longer wanted to ship their beers from the brewery to the port on a diesel polluting vessel. They wanted emission-free goods transport. And we made this happen. And since 2021, this transport is being battery powered with renewable energy coming from Dutch solar or wind energy. It felt like a huge success. We were eager to scale up. But scaling up turned out to be extremely difficult. One of the things that made it very hard was the business case. And I think that counts for most startups, but in this case, um, we had some unfair competition. Because with our solution, the ship owners only had to pay for the electricity that they consumed. And the investment of the battery pack was ours. However, for each kilowatt hour on renewable electricity, we had to pay four and a half cents extra on taxes, the energy tax and also the opslag duurzame energie. And this four and a half cents, we had to charge that directly to our customers. Well, on the same hand, at the same time, these customers didn't have to pay this amount of money for diesel because of old regulations uh, from centuries ago, the Act of Mannheim. And it meant that for diesel, uh, no taxes had to be paid. But this gave us a huge disadvantage, not only in money, but also in terms of importance. It felt like the other way around. How come that we had to pay extra money while we had a clean solution? And how come the polluter wasn't charged a dime? You see that happen more often eh, in transition periods. Things must change, but it happens that front runners go faster than policy rules or regulations. But at a certain stage, policy need to follow and support the transition for the better. And last Saturday, more than 25,000 people joined the climate protest in The Hague, the Netherlands. It was a big call to action to the Dutch government and politics to stop subsidizing fossil fuels currently being more than 37.5 billion euros. And this protest was initiated by Extinction Rebellion. And on their website, they explained that they are a group of ordinary people from all across the country of all ages who are just really worried about the climate and the ecological crisis. And about four years ago, the organization was quite small and now they have a very large reach. So what's behind it? Who are these rebellions? How do they work and what can we learn from them? In today's podcast, we will zoom into the life of an extinction rebellion and learn from Lynn van Heulen what it is about. Also the dilemmas that she's facing and her upcoming projects. When we are watching the news or reading the newspapers, we can really become depressed because we are facing an existential crisis of climate change and biodiversity loss. But we can do something to slow down these effects and to turn the tides. 
In this podcast, we will learn from fellow change makers, people who are changing the world, who are pioneering and brave to make things happen. Welcome, Lien, to the show. Could you tell us something about yourself? Yeah, great. Thanks for being here. Um, my name is uh, Lynn. I'm 35 years old. Uh, I live in Rotterdam together with my husband and two daughters. Um, I have a background in sustainable energy. I've been working in um, the climate transition for the last 10 years. And actually, quite recently, I took the step to focus more on activism and the role activists activist can and should play in the climate transition and specifically focus on the Rotterdam context and the port of Rotterdam. Thank you. And the activism, can you tell us a bit more about that? How how, how did you get into that? Was there something in your uh, childhood or some experience or some person that, that triggered you to go into the activism? Yeah, yeah, it's a really nice question. Um, I um, I joined Extinction Rebellion about one and a half year, years ago. Um, but I was aware of the climate uh, crisis, I would say, um, um, many years before that point. Um, for me, I remember the wake-up call on the crisis was when my uh, oldest daughter was born. Uh, before that, I, I studied sustainable energy and I'd been working in the climate transition, so I knew something was going on. But I really remember the point that she was lying on my lap and I was reading a book on the climate transition, and suddenly rather than knowing it from a rational perspective, I got hit emotionally. I realized the crisis is big, but the crisis will also affect my children. And I have kind of a responsibility now as a parent also to look look care or to look after not only uh, uh, my baby, but also on the world she'll grow up in. So I had kind of insights and emotional, um, I would say, realization um yeah work uh, several things that came together and then from that moment in time I really tried to search on like how can I uh, make a difference and I did it on a personal level like how can I reduce my footprint how can I be a better actor in the climate transition and how can I be more proactive in, in voicing my opinion so I did a lot of things and then at a certain moment in in time, and that was about one and a half years ago, I realized that as an individual, you can do a lot, but obviously it requires a system change. And what's most likely to lead to deep system changes, that's kind of a, I don't want to say a revolution in the sense that it's a, it's, it's the friends of evolution or anything alike, but it's really people and groups stepping up and voicing their opinion and getting the media attention. So for me, that was a moment in time I realized that Extinction Rebellion, before that time, I thought, oh, those those worried people that are a bit yeah. strange. I, yeah. I suddenly realized, hey, they have a role to play. And I don't see the transitioning happening without these groups being there. So for me, yeah. me so it remembered you also system. about the revolutions in the past, about, for example, women's rights or... Uh, in, in Holland, we had Baas and Eigen Buik, yeah, the, the females yeah. coming up um, for their own rights and, and everything. Did it remind you of that Extinction Rebellion at that moment? Yeah, yeah, it, it was. Um, I knew about them and then I went to search like, hey, what is it? Also, what is nonviolent direct action and what has happened in the past? And I have to admit, I was a bit clueless on okay. how big social transitions happened. But of course, as you mentioned, 
the fact that we have um, safe bike lanes in the Netherlands, the fact that we have uh, women rights, the fact that slavery was abolished, none of these things would have happened without protest movements. Yeah. And when realizing that together with the climate crisis, it was a logical conclusion that for me, there was also a role to play in that field, how uncomfortable it was at that time and still a bit is. And and you're, you're, yeah, you've changed, obviously, but yeah. what did you find out about these groups? Because you initially had a different feeling about these groups than you have right now. So yeah. what changed and how did you, what, what has influenced you in that? Yeah. Um, you tell us a bit about, for, especially for people who are not so into Extinction Rebellion and they see some things on the news, for example, but yeah. yeah, can you explain a bit? How does it work? What is it about? What is it about? What does Extinction Rebellion do? Yes, uh, that's a big question. Um, you can make it smaller, eh? if, it's, yeah. if it's too big. Yeah, yeah. It's um, uh, the, um, the, te the tactic the movement uses is nonviolent direct action, and that's action... Um, uh, confronting uh, a, a government body or a, a big company, a big polluter with the fact that they should move faster and they should do more. Um, and it's always about, or it's a, it's about a bit of disruption, as we know now currently with the A12, or it's about being really creative. So having a big banner or having a sit-in that really confronts people that it's really difficult to look away. Um, and that's the method that has worked with the the, the 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 social transitions I just talked about a couple of minutes ago. And the reason why we do that mm -hmm. is that um, from a scientific perspective, uh, if you look at what um, um, the climate uh, the climate issue is, but also the big ecosystem collapse we're experiencing, we actually have to radically change course. That, that that means like at the moment what we are what all companies are doing and all what our all corporates are doing is a step by step transition obviously we need to become more sustainable but it needs to go step by step and from a transition perspective there's not so much wrong with that because that's how how ev evolutions happen but if you look at the reality on the sense of urgency that's required to really tackle the climate crisis uh, a speedier transition is needed so Extinction Rebellion, with its actions, tries to push and confront parties who have power to make that move. Um, and um, uh, we, yeah, I think we're quite um, step by step, we're becoming more successful in getting our point across, I hope. And how do you measure that successfulness? What, what, what you say it's successful, how do you know? Yeah, it's um, it's difficult, right? Because I think we can only decide what its success will be maybe in 10 or 20 years when looking back. But no, now in the moment in time, Extinction Rebellion has existed for about four years um, in the Netherlands. Uh, also, obviously, has known the corona crisis where activism was quite difficult. And now you see, since the time I got, the, I joined the organization was quite small and radical and not mainstream at all. Mm -hmm. And at the moment, we have um, we're dominating newspapers. We're um, being in the offices of the people in charge. Um, there's more and more support. Not I would say for the type of actions we do, but for our demands and for the fact that more urgent climate action is needed. 
So, so what I has changed the, there? What what made how how did that was happen? This yeah, possible. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I um, I feel um, like it was we've known about the climate crisis for a long time, but in the last couple of years, it's more difficult to look away. I think for the general public, if you look at the amount of wildfires we see, the amount of um, rainfall uh, droughts uh, every summer or every winter, it's still like it's 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 right. Um, it's in it's in our face. I would say. Yeah, it's it's definitely um, so in our face. Yeah. So I feel that there's kind of a tension in society of people knowing something should be done. Um, but um, I would say lacking an idea of what they could do, what what should be done. And I feel that that tension now with XR being there, it's kind of a, uh, an impulse. Or, you yeah, know, it's, it's kind it's, of it's, XR it's is a transition. It's kind of, XR is like uh, inviting people on a friendly and, and indeed non-violent way. I think that can be quite attractive because what you see uh, in a newspaper, like the Volkskrant, for example, the Dutch newspaper, you see that there are quite a lot of people concerned with uh, climate uh, climate issues. But the general public, the general idea is that uh, not there, there's, there's little, there are little people who are... Um, who find this important or believe something is 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 happening or should be done well the bigger part of it actually feels that things need to be changed and need yeah. to be done uh so there's a there's a mismatch on what is yeah. currently in people's minds on their own minds versus what is uh reality so if let's say we are in a group with 10 persons and let's say six or seven of those persons feel that climate uh, there, there are issues with the climate and we need to do something. Most people in that group believe that they might be the only one. Mm -hmm. uh, well, in fact, there are like six or seven. Mm -hmm. So it means that to step up in that group and do things differently that are in favor of the climate uh, is like a social, uh, it, it's, it's awkward. Mm -hmm. Well, if there's one person stepping up and he or she says like, hey, uh, I've I've read this and I'm I feel I feel concerned and I'm not sure what to do but I'm trying to to uh, have a less of a, of an impact on climate by buying less stuff or by not eating meat anymore or um, I'm now going by public transport. Uh, how are you feeling? And is there someone who wants to join me in this that we're going to go on this voyage together? The second person there who is then saying like, yes, I would like to join is then the trigger to actually invite the rest. And step by step, people feel that it's socially acceptable to join in. And I think XR is actually the one who speaks up and says like, hey, uh, we yeah, want to do something. You're also joining forces with other NGOs. So more and more it gets socially acceptable, I guess. I don't know yeah. what your opinion is about that. Yeah, yeah, I, uh, that that's the case. So it's actually, I feel that the transition is never one. It's it's not only XR or it's not only about norms or it's not only about governments. It's actually the collective that changes. Uh, and I feel that what XR does is it's one of the key demands or key principles is tell the truth. So we're not hiding amongst what's socially acceptable or what's economically viable we just tell this is what science asks 
and uh, let's act upon it. And if we don't act upon it, then prepare for the consequences. So very, I would say, rough, down to earth, honest about the urgency, which I would say, or hopefully trigger society to, to, to not look away and to have the discussion during lunch about these crazy activists and what they say and what they mean and what does it mean. So I think it's part of a bigger change. Right? Yeah, so. it is. It is. And but also, everybody makes impact with everything that you do. But the thing is that if you do it by yourself, it feels that the impact is small, even though those yeah. are signals. Hey, if you buy different goods or if you don't buy anymore, those that, that are signals. But you know, at a certain stage, you need to step up because the whole system needs to change. The governmental bodies need to, to have different policies, for example. And you can only do so much by stepping up and joining forces. Yeah. Um, it's mm -hmm. easier to actually move perhaps the bigger companies as well, and also the, the governmental parties, etc. Yeah, I think what you're saying is uh, is interesting because I, for a long time, I was the one that um, acted like, hey, if flying is bad for the environment, I won't fly. And if eating yeah. meat is bad for the environment, I won't eat meat. And I felt that if we would do that as a collective, I would also spread the words to people around me and we would, we would change. And I still feel that needs to be done, right? It's 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 crazy to be really concerned and act, not act upon it in any way uh, in your life cho lifestyle choices. But I've also came to realize that a lot of people are stuck in a system which is unsustainable. So if you go into the supermarket and you want to buy sustainable, healthy stuff, how is it possible if 80% is unsustainable and unhealthy and is cheaper and you see commercials all over you that say that, that that trigger you to buy it. So in a very unsustainable system, it's really difficult to be sustainable. So that requires governments to step up, to think about not what individual short-term choices are or what preferences are, but to think about what's good for society now and in the future and the future generations. And that strengthened me in voicing up and demanding a system change and demanding the courage to step up. Because at this very moment, I think it's extremely conflicting, extremely frustrating is the politics and big companies out there. Nobody says that the climate transition shouldn't happen, but we want it to happen or they want it to happen. And what, without changing our lives so without changing society but these are conf conflicting from a i would say planetary boundaries and and material boundaries and energy boundaries point of view yeah i think that's my biggest uh, <laughs> yeah so uh, you can't yeah you can't be uh, really sustainable if you don't change yeah, from the inside as a person but also as a company as a governmental party etc uh, etc et it's the whole system that needs to change, like a different consciousness, I guess. Some say it's a, yeah, you need a different level of consciousness to to actually live the future. Yeah, I've, yeah, indeed. Yeah. So yeah. tell us a bit about your role, eh? you, because I know you a bit better. Eh? We, we, we call each other every now and then just to to share each other's opinion about, about things, because you look at things at a different perspective than I do, and then... We share opinions and uh, uh, yeah, we we enrich uh, each other. Um, 
you seem to be like a bridge builder, like a free actor in the field. So on the one hand, you're this activist person, but on the other hand, you are a person who is very respectful to other people and really listen to, hey, what's happening on the other side? So really try to understand this other person and to also learn from it and then help, uh, for example, your movement or the ambitions that you have to, to grow with each other. Uh, can you tell us a bit about that, what it yes. is that you do, what your magic trick is? Yes, Th uh, thanks for the compliments. Maybe one correction is obviously I'm activist. I'm an activist in uh, how I act and what I think. Mm -hmm. uh, but you mentioned you're an activist and you still are respectful to other people. I feel that. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. Oh, that's uh, very good that you say. Roman that, yeah. activists are also respectful, <laughs> but maybe <laughs> uh, take a different role. Um, <laughs> that's the nuance. And um, no, but it's a I good have, thing uh, that you mention because it seems often that that activists the, the the appearance might be that you go in in Dutch it's with a gestrekt bein erin, but you say like, hey, this is what needs to happen, and there's no other way than than this how it should should be. Yeah. So yeah. you tell yeah. now that yeah, and that's not per se the case. or Yeah, I think as a movement, like if you're a protester and let's imagine you have a banner saying we need to stop um, fossil subsidies, for example, but yeah. we still need to take into account uh, all the stakes of uh, this person and this group and this. No, there's no room for nuance. Excellent. So in if you're a protest movement, you need one-liners, you need very sharp messages and messages that trigger a certain emotion and that's its success and that's also its role it should play uh, so as a protest movement i support what they do however as a person what's needed is from that activist perspective in building bridges because it's not the, the case that 95 of the the other part of the society ignores the whole issue and isn't concerned at all so it's really from that the, the sharp um, observation, what needs to change, build bridges with stakeholders to make that change happen and to have the deep conversations. And um, I wouldn't say collaborate, but I would say coordinate efforts in a way. Okay. Tell us a bit about how that works. Um, behind the scenes. Yeah. How that works. Uh, for example, I've, um, I've been... Um, one of the people um, researching on the Rotterdam Harbor, because that's a campaign we recently started. Um, and the Rotterdam Harbor, that's, um, uh, I think, known for your listeners. Uh, that's that's um, uh, a lot of companies are part of the Rotterdam Harbor. It's the biggest, it's a, it's an oil harbor. So there's a lot of oil refineries and also uh, ships uh, on, the, um, on filthy oils entering our harbor every day. So uh, it's both from an industry uh, perspective, as the gold pans are there, as, as ships are that are there, it, it's a big polluter and change needs to happen. Um, there has been, like, plans have been made for the last 20 years or 25 years, ambition documents, studies, a lot of people have talked about it. But if you look at the progress that's being made, it's tiny steps and big steps are required. So I've uh, developed, I've done a lot of research on what's currently happening. And uh, in that research, I connected to um, NGOs, I connected to university researchers, I connected to concerned citizens, um, and I connected to um, allies, so other movements in the city that are also concerned. And now going into the campaign, there's a much broader network 
um, to, to make it happen because it won't only be, in, be in an activist movement on a bridge uh, demanding yeah. change. It will be everybody voicing and collaborating, making that change happen and put and, and increasing the pressure. So that's then the role that I play. So I do the research, I build the collaborations, um, and I look at the. Um, I also look at um, like I, I don't only look at the uh, people that think along or that think similar similarly. I also go and talk to the, the laborers in a in the harbor, the people that are currently working in the coal industry and where that change needs to happen. That are quite, I would say, rough rough uh, conversations because it's not easy it's like two different worlds but I feel that if we don't even know each other or understand each other perspectives how can it in the end how can they come along so it's I feel it's really vital to uh, be that bridge builder um, for the success of the campaign for and in the end uh, to have a just uh, and quick transition and those difficult conversations that you for example have with those workers how does it end? Is it like uh, a difficult from the start and at the end you're like uh, still com competing or com combating or is it in the end there's some harmony? Yeah, um, there is... At least not from so person to person. <laughs> yeah, it's there's not so much harmony on the content because okay. uh, if you look at what, what, what those people want is they want to have... Um, uh, they, they've been working, like it's, it's quite... Um, interesting like people working in the harbor they've been working there for 20 30 years so it's their lives it's their careers it's what they're good at um so for them it's really important and what we know from a climate movement is if you just look at it from a carbon budget point of view so how much carbon budget do we have left before reaching the 1.5 degrees we're talking about six to seven years so that means a gigantic uh, uh, reduction of the emissions and a direct influence on their jobs. For them, that's obviously not what they want. So in the end, we'll never come to the conclusion that we want the same things. But I is have because I, I on the other hand, yeah, but on the other hand, me. is it that they want this work or do they that they want work in the harbor? Because work yeah. can change. So maybe yeah. they they aspire work and having a, a secure income also to to feed their families and to have their mortgages etc. So yeah. what is it? Is it really about the the type of work or is it work in general and yeah. that they can use their capabilities and quality in this in a different way? Yeah, I fully agree, and that's exactly the narrative that needs to change. Obviously, they, obviously the people love their jobs; they're good at it, and they have nice colleagues. So obviously, they don't want to directly change their jobs. But um, we know that for realizing the energy transition, we need hundred thousands of people. And at okay. the moment, we have a lot of people that are really intelligent and capable working in the fossil industry. And one of the arguments or key arguments is that we can't make that change because otherwise we'll lose jobs. Obviously not. Those people, they, they, need, they, they, they want job protection and they want to have um, a, a job that, that's fulfilling that's the key the, the the key issue so how can we make that possible rather than keeping those fossil jobs that in the end will kill us all to be yeah. very activist minded and sharp <laughs> <laughs> interesting interesting is there anything uh, are there any people or or uh, skills that you need to help you on this journey let's say our listeners are listening and they are find this interesting what do you need any help 
Yeah, that's um, that's a, a good point. Um, uh, in my role as researcher and bridge builder, I realized that activist movements are needed, but that there's also a need for a linking pin because a lot of people are worried and a lot of research has been done and a lot of perspectives and solutions on what could be done have been drafted. And I'm trying to find ways on bringing that knowledge together. So kind of mapping the harbor, the fossil harbor as it is, because I've realized in the discussions I have with politicians, they only know bits and pieces of it because the, the, the knowledge of, of the whole complex puzzle is extremely distributed. So at this very moment, I'm looking at um, how can I make that picture complete and from the completeness trigger the right type of discussions and help uh, move people forward. So everybody who has um, um, specific, I would say, um, uh, knowledge or interest with regards to the, the Rotterdam Harbor and uh, elements happening in that harbor from a health perspective, a social perspective, a climate perspective, a solution perspective, I'd really be happy to be connected. And at the same time, I'm also thinking um, um, what's needed to make a bigger movement and is it then real realistic to do it from an XR perspective or is kind of a, a force for people, bigger community organization needed? And how can I make that happen? And how can I make that funded? And who who, who has the same stakes? So I'm also looking at it, this perspective. So if people have crazy ideas, let me know. <laughs> yeah, and now you're saying about ports for people, that's also a campaign from the US. Yes. Civic environment. I know that you're already in contact with them because with them, this party, I together with CS at Risk, which was an NGO, uh, in Europe, uh, I think they represent about 30, 35 um, NGOs in, in maritime. Mm -hmm. uh, we did a roundtable in, in Rotterdam yeah. last March, which was very interesting, where there were uh, researchers, there were um, uh, ship, ship builders, ship owners, there were like in, even the port of Rotterdam, they were represented. There was Erasmus University, uh, traders, even FMFA, a social uh, organization. And together we uh, we were looking into okay how to make the ports more sustainable. But was, mm -hmm. what was very interesting is that uh, this one person from Seas at Risk, Lucy uh, Gilliam, she explained the opportunity for Rotterdam that the mm -hmm. Rotterdam is a is actually the place to be to initiate change because Rotterdam is really like a front runner, can be the front runner for entire Europe and. It's it's yeah. the perfect place to be to really draft change, make change, and to to uh, from that accelerate to the rest of Europe. Mm -hmm. And uh, I yeah. think it's good that you've you've been in contact with them too. But yeah. if there are people who are listening who feel, hey, I want to be part of this too. This sound seems awesome, and this is in my uh, area. Then please uh, please join. How can they yeah. get in contact me? with you? Yeah, I think LinkedIn, if you mention my name, I'm, I think, the only person in uh, the Netherlands with this name. So very easy to find on LinkedIn, I would Perfect. say. Perfect. And my final question to you, what is your hope for the future? Yeah, <laughs> that's a <laughs> hope, hope, hope. Um, it's a big question because sometimes I feel very hopeless on how things are going uh, or it's it's kind of a, 
we have a poly crisis going on. This morning I read that six out of nine planetary boundaries are, are already crossed. And at the same time, we feel that uh, uh, driving slower on the highways is still uh, a big thing. So the contrast about what needs to be done and what's being done or what's being socially accepted is quite big, I have to say. Um, but at the same time, I feel that the um, there's a gigantic momentum going on, I think, from norms being changed, from people stepping up, from it becoming more socially acceptable to step up, from politicians who talk about what climate policy needs to be. So I feel we're now at a tipping point. And my hope would actually be that it's a tipping point, a tipping point for sharpening and uh, sharpening policies, sharpening the change, making the change happen. Um, I, it's possible, I know. I only, I only hope we won't lose the momentum because we've had that momentum as a climate movement before. And now it's the key thing on how we can, how we can capture it and make, make it happen. And I think it's not the responsibility of me, it's the responsibility of all of us. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for listening to my podcast. Would you like to know more about Lynn van Heulen or Extinction Rebellion? I have also added a link to the show notes. If you feel this podcast was interesting to you, then please review this podcast by giving it a five-point star rating and share it with your network so even more people can become inspired. By following this podcast, you can stay tuned for more inspiring episodes.